Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Rank Up, on-page SEO podcast where we talk about technical SEO, content optimization, search engine news, and much more. My name is Ben Gary, and today I am joined once again by Ed Wilson. Ed, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks, Ben. It feels kind of spring-like today, so yeah, got another extra, um, yeah, just feels a, a lot more happy yes, with all that's going on in the world. So yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good to this. Extra, extra bit of energy. It's nice when the yeah. sun's out. Uh, I'm definitely, definitely been feeling a bit more positive. And I was walking to the train station yesterday without a coat on, which felt very nice as well. <laughs> it's always, always good to start off a British podcast with a good chat about the weather, isn't it? I know. Like, could there be anything more British than that? Well, to, uh, to save us and bring us back to SEO, I will bring in our guest this week, uh, Dan Taylor, the Head of Research and Development at SALT. Dan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, Ben. And um, not wanting to segue too far, but there is no sunshine in Leeds today. It's grey clouds, so I'd, I'd appreciate some of the spring being nice <laughs> in my way. Well, well, we'll try and exude some positive energy on the podcast for you. And um, I'm sorry that you had to, to listen to us waxing lyrical about the sun there. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's, go straight, uh, let's go straight into the questions and hear more about you, Dan, because we've got uh, a lot to go out today, uh, a really exciting topic. Um, that I know we're Ed and I are really keen to discuss um, but we want to hear a bit more about you uh, as we do with all of our guests so that people listening know who we're talking to so how did you get to where you are in SEO today? So I guess kind of like most SEOs I never actually intended to go into SEO um, I didn't grow up dreaming of being an SEO versus the astronaut firefighter dreams oh. things I kind of fell into marketing in a weird way so my dad used to be a radio dj and compared with bands in the 70s and 80s and yeah. in the early 2000s he started working as the pa announcer at grimsby town football club and they had just bought a brand new scoreboard i believe from glasgow rangers at the time yeah and they had no one to operate it and my dad gallantly just kind of turned around and said well my lad knows computers so <laughs> aged 11 I got thrust into this small room in anyone who knows football on Sangrimsby stadiums a little bit dilapidated nowadays for yes. a better word and aged 11 I learned MDOS and was operating the scoreboard designing the animations in essentially like pixel frame rate kind of way and yeah kind of was around the marketing commercial teams, which as an 11-year-old child, you're surrounded by ex-footballers and former footballers. So I kind of went, oh, marketing seems like it's pretty fun. I kind of want to do this. <laughs> so went on to marketing, went and did kind of marketing at university, coupled with business and economics, and then started off in broad marketing and kind of fell into SEO probably about eight years ago, more as a kind of a specialist in-house and then took the agency plunge about seven years ago. Okay. What was I think it? That's that... one of, I was sorry, I was going to say, I think that's one of the, the nichest ways into SEO, but also one of our favourite that we've heard on the podcast so far. <laughs> that is the first time I've ever heard anybody uh, use Grimsby Town as a direct link to SEO. I'm <laughs> very confident in saying that. Um, I was just curious, Dan, what, uh, what made you take the plunge to, to an agency? Go across there. So I was kind. Of, I was working in house um, and kind of covering all like the kind of stuff I should normal kind of in house exec would. So dipping in and out of SEO, social, a lot of email, and I just kind of I was more drawn towards the SEO side of things because mm. the email stuff was just right. Like change some stuff in HTML template each week, load it up into a platform, hit send, and hope for numbers hit an industry benchmark each time. It kind of got a bit repetitive and boring, whereas the SEO side of stuff, it for me, SEO is one of my practices where it's it's a combination and a mongrel kind of channel of psychology, economics, business, general marketing stuff, and also just the unknown as well. And that kind of made it a lot more interesting than yeah. spread I mean obviously the spreadsheets involved in it, but the input output doesn't always work the way you'd expect you to and that's more interesting for me yeah 
Well, that, that makes sense. And your role now, uh, head of research and development, certainly indicates that the kind of learning and discovery side of things has never really left in that time. Mm. Um, but because it's maybe not not the sort of standard role we see in, in SEO, having interviewed a fair few people on the podcast, this may be the first time we've come across this one specifically. So what does that look like day to day now for you? So it's, it's probably quite a hybrid role if we try and match it to kind of other industry kind of structure. So at Salt, a lot of what we do is troubleshooting, essentially. We go into sites with heavy monolithic kind of ancient stacks and have other yeah, yeah. kind of technical problems. It's not the sort of traditional issues. And there's a lot of stakeholders buying and other elements to deal with it. So the R&D role kind of came about more from us just having to find not ways of necessarily just blindly going after best practice, but actually trying to make things work for clients because it's all right just looking at, say, a e-commerce front end, for example, but then it's how the PIM system integrates into the back-end limitations and everything else around it. So day-to-day, it's kind of a little bit more what a kind of technical would look like coupled okay. with account directorship strategy. I'm also quite heavy in... Um, I mean, I've developed a full wording and development program at Salt as well, um, okay. which I did in conjunction with my, well, the university I studied at. So when we take on new grad, well, fresh grads, we put them through a full training program in relation to that. I've built that out. And yeah, day-to-day is a lot of everything. Yeah. New business, the technical stuff, account directorship. And, but it, it's, it's fun. It, it keeps things agile and moving. Yeah, it sounds like you're still getting a fair bit of kind of hands-on SEO in there and exposure to different client sites and problems, which is, I guess, as you get more senior, one of the one of the challenges that many people face is, is that reducing, as, as is inevitable, I think. But it's great that you've been able to kind of stay on the forefront of that as well. Yeah, I get a lot of escalations, shall mm. we say, a lot of sanity checks, which doesn't make good for headaches and nice simple problems but it keeps you on your toes yeah absolutely and well we're hoping that some of that is what we're gonna tap into today some of that experience with um particularly some of the some of the trickier problems in seo the more intricate ones um because our our topic that we want to talk to you about is uh indexing uh, particularly around e-commerce sites uh, and even more specifically larger larger e-commerce sites that are really likely to have these problems uh, at some sort of scale um, and I'm going to hand over to Ed shortly for the for the majority of these questions as I know it's an area Ed is also very interested in um, but I just wanted to start with the with the big picture really making sure that everybody's on the same page at the start of this conversation and um, why in SEO is indexing a particularly important issue for e-commerce and as I've just said especially large e-commerce sites so I think for me, it's, it's, I mean, it's an important issue outside of e-commerce as well, but with mm. e-commerce in particular, it's, it's matching the desired organic performance as a channel versus how the business and the business model actually operates. So a good majority of e-commerce websites will have um, elements of seasonality to product lines. They'll have uh, different kind of tiers for them. So working with a um, a fast fashion brand in the US, they have their kind of their stable seasonal lines, but then they also have the one-off kind of two, three-week lines that come in. So there's fast product rotation, there's high churn. Yeah. And the expectancy of a business for a lot of e-commerce businesses, but let's be honest, e-commerce in terms of how people buy is still only really 20 years old. If we think about it at scale, most people making that jump to e-commerce potentially in the last 10, 15 years. So the mindset of people buying products can still be retained in the old kind of brick and mortar methodologies where if you put something on a shelf, it's available, people can buy it, same as putting clothes on a rack. Whereas online, that shelf and rack is oftentimes dependent on Google actually indexing and then actually serving the product for the right query and it's that disconnect which can make it more interesting and nuanced as a problem to actually solve um, yeah 
and it, well, it will differ between the brand and the business model, but that's the more common kind of issues we come across. Yeah. So sort of fundamentally recognising that Google is, well, yeah, Google and possibly other search engines, largely Google, are the the me, the main medium that people are sort of coming to these uh, in quotation marks shop fronts too and, and seeing these products in the first place. And I guess it, it's about getting getting visible there in the first place. It's, it's no use having a window if no one can see into it to continue using the, the brick and mortar analogy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But given that we're relying on, uh, relying on Google so much, um, you said something in our sort of planning chat that I wanted to bring up here, um, which, was, which was interesting and also speaks to a lot of the pain of, of SEOs, um, that as clever as, as Google is, as advanced as it has become in the last few years, uh, at times, it can still be uh, incredibly stupid uh, when it comes to some things which can uh, you know, be very frustrating for us in SEO. So what was it that you had in mind when you when you said that to us before? So I think as so it's kind of a bit nuanced as well as uh, by how clever Google's become, it has become extremely clever in terms of how it uses machine learning to an almost sentient AI level of processing, how it uses um, LDA, uh, vectors, not LSI, LDA, um, which we used about 10 years ago as a method of understanding topic relevancy, how it now uses BERT, um, all the other things to actually understand intent, understand serving, understand content better. But fundamentally, at the core of this layer of almost razzle-dazzle in the machine learning world, it's a basic... Um, ETL processor, it extracts data, it transforms data, it loads data. And we see that in SEO as we crawl slash render um, index and serve. And we see it oftentimes and time and time again that even though Google's trying to process all these signals at the top end, it still has to process the data and it has to process that in a scalable way because the internet is trillions, quintillions, whatever you want to call it, exillion documents on the internet. And yeah. it can only reasonably, physically process X percentage of those. So being able to give it correct signals will make it work and ultimately lead to better return as a business and will be commerce. So an example of a stupidity, for example, in January this year, um, I had three e-commerce websites all around the same time, all experienced Google doing something different with them. So one of them, about 10,000 SKUs, it randomly just started to prefer the more popular sort of variable products within a range over others, and we saw it overriding canonicals towards them. We're looking at it and going, oh, that's not necessarily an issue. It's understanding that out of these five dresses, the red and black ones are more popular, so it's choosing to give more database effort and resource towards those versus the blue, green, and white. That's pretty clever. That's good. For another one, it essentially just started to consolidate everything into categories. Um, this is kind of mechanical engineering. So lots of very subtle changes between products, but at the same time, combining them into what we see as the index, but still serving the more specific ones for specific queries. So again, that's the difference between actually being indexed and actually being served, the difference Google makes there. But then on another site, which is about 300,000 SKUs, it just decided to drop pretty much all of them from the index in one go, and then rebuild all of them over the next two, three weeks as it was deciding what was value. So it's almost like, it was trying to sort through different boxes, realised that one box it could sort through in the box, the other one it could just tidy up, and then the third one was like the really big box of Legos, and it just ticked it all out and decided to put it back in piece by piece. Yeah. That I'm assuming was there was there no warning for that? No sort of nothing that you had done or seen that kind of prepared you for it. It just sort of happened on that third site and you just had to deal with it afterwards. So the third sign kind of happened first as well, which okay. made us more alert to the other ones, but it just happened relatively overnight. Um, wow. And it slowly clawed itself back. Uh, but this again also raised the thing around the difference in how Google indexes and how Google serves, because 
in SEO, we oftentimes take the knowledge of if it is indexed, it will rank. But there's a difference between what Google will index and is known to the database and what it serves. And we often see when people do like a site operator query, for example, we see some people, we see that oftentimes being used as an example of, well, if it's indexed, technically it is indexed, but a site operator query is just showing what's known to Google. And it might not include results it doesn't believe is relevant because it's actually not a database lookup. It's still just an advanced query operator. So the rules of Google relevancy still apply. Whereas we see conflicts all the time of it saying, oh, we're not, we've chosen a different canonical in this in Search Console. But then if you type a very specific query for that product name, it will still serve it because it's still known to Google. doesn't mean it's in the primary index. So... It's stupid to some extent, and yeah. stupid things, but it's still got a level of intelligence. Yeah, which which makes for an interesting balance, um, and a, well, lack of consistency, as you were describing as well, which is part of the part of the fun. And I guess why why a, why an advanced role like yours is is really important within agencies, and yeah, having that knowledge is always going to be useful because it's never going to be as simple as just looking down a checklist and saying, well this has happened so this is this must be this must be the reason and this must be the solution yeah and as great as having a, a kind of a, a timeline of events is you'll know as well as i do from working on multiple different things but we'll go oh we sort of historically it was down to x and then yeah. when you look into it x is absolutely fine it's peaking yeah. things wrong with it and then you've discovered that the hydra has many heads kind of thing yeah absolutely <laughs> Right, Ed, over to you. I know you've got you've got some questions you want to ask as well. Oh, I'm not going to hog all the time. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, so uh, I think especially in recent years, we've seen more investment in, I guess, CMSs, uh, e-commerce CMSs, such as Shopify. And then most specifically, I think they've started to really fine-tune their SEO offer as well. I know Shopify and you know, Magento have especially made headway in terms of making websites more accessible for search engines. But... In terms of main areas that you feel modern e-commerce websites get wrong when it comes to not only just indexing but also crawler accessibility as well, what are, what do you feel are those like core areas that you um, commonly see on a you know on an ongoing basis? I guess from my perspective, over the past years, it, it felt like pagination was an area that was an area that <laughs> I could see a lot of websites having a different approaches to, but not uh, essentially the, the potentially the best way. Uh, but from your perspective, what do you feel are some kind of key areas that you see on a common basis? No, I think I think pagination kind of ties into the core element I see a lot. And going back to an element you asked in the question of how a number of CMSs have improved over recent years, one of the biggest issues I probably come across, when, especially if a site hasn't had, I'm going to call it performant SEO versus more box tick SEO because... A lot of organizations and enterprise e-com will have an internal SEO, but we know that the objectives of an internal SEO oftentimes are more aligned with process and action versus bringing in the expectancy of an external vendor who the expectancy is growth. So different objectives lead to different kind of actual outcomes. I think one of the phrases is you were... Um, you only achieve what you measure. So whatever set as a KPI oftentimes is the thing that gets done versus others. But in relation to that, how it works with CMSs, it's an over-reliance I see on the CMS out of the box as being the way forward. So we know that we can probably look at any e-commerce website and you will have uh, a page, like, I mean, Shopify, Magento, Salesforce, we're all the same. You'll have a static page, which you can just have for static content. You'll have a homepage template, you'll have the PLP product listing page template, and you'll have PDPs, which are your actual product pages. You'll have different elements on there for cross-sell, upsell, and other internal linking elements, and you'll have a pagination on those pages. But outside of that, very rarely do I come across websites who have actually been taking a look at the structures and trying to expand it beyond what we traditionally see as our traditional kind of catalogue structure. And as you said, there goes with pagination where you'll have products potentially being added to a category which have been added to page six, page seven, because that's the last page versus being added to page one and being in next quicker. So 
working with them on especially indexing signals. And we know XML sitemaps exist and Google uses them, but we also know that Google values finding things through direct crawling. Some anecdotally might say more than what we see in XML. So even expansions and doing special landing pages or template pages, pseudo HTML sitemaps that look nice for the user, but they're there just for Google crawls to access deep linking stuff. It's that going beyond just what the out-of-the-box CMS and platform gives you. Yeah. So does that touch upon, like, kind of information architecture and creating your own, like, unique architecture as it would that relates towards, like, your, your product offering and stuff like that? Yeah. No, 100%. So, I mean, one of the examples I've always given, and this goes back a couple of years, is working with a shoe retailer. And they had... Obviously, the brand, and then they had sort of sub brands within that, and then the sub brands all had different variations. And if you just have the normal page for that brand and category, etc., it kind of boils down. But if you actually look then at what people were searching, people who were looking for this particular shoe, they were looking for the specific brands, they were looking for that specific variation, specific color patterns, the special editions. But from an architecture perspective on the website, their pages did exist, but they were oftentimes filter pages from facet navigation or search. And more often than not, someone somewhere will have no-followed all the facet navigation, blocked all the parameters, blocked them in robots text because of index bloat and crawl bloat, rather than doing it on a, do we want this to be indexed versus not? So just by creating special product listing pages targeting that specifically, adding in some hot links at the top of it. I mean, architecture, the information architecture then gives you the opportunity to provide a better experience for the user searching because it's if you, because if you think about the journey offline, if you go into a supermarket and you want to buy pasta, you'll go to the aisle which will likely have, well, not even pasta written above it, but you'll think World Foods or something like that. You'll go to that area I and mean, you'll expect to find it in there. It's more of a linear path. Whereas just going, if you do that journey online, it's oftentimes you want pasta, so it just takes you to non-chilled goods and then you have to work your way down from there. Whereas if you take someone more direct, it's a better experience. Yeah, definitely. I think this is a super interesting area. And I think... When you mentioned there, these kind of out box, uh, out of the box solutions that, that potentially don't provide that unique information architecture towards a brand or that that store, how do you essentially find these issues in the first place? Is it is it more like technical items in terms of maybe like log file analysis, understanding what Google's reaching, or even using like indexing data associated to it, or is it? traffic analytics in terms of like sessions or revenue reaches by this page or, or is it kind of a combination of pulling all this data into one place and then allowing it to inform you from there? So I'd say it, it typically varies across platforms because obviously with platforms like Salesforce, Commerce Cloud, log files aren't achievable because of the shared hosting system they'll use. Similarly, until recently, we couldn't do anything with Shopify in that regard either. Um, oftentimes, I think e-commerce architecture can be well and truly overcomplicated, and sometimes we probably have to just go back especially when it comes to an indexing perspective because we know that google is better at understanding page value it's better at understanding page purpose and it's better at matching that to the user so if i use um adidas as an example adidas samba's um samba shoes 1948, 1949, they came about. There were a lot of variations of it now, in terms of an actual sneaker. Now, people will search specifically for the specific line item, the specific brand, even the specific year at some point in these. And we can see that from third-party tools. We can see that from Search Console. We can see different elements. Now, if people are searching Adidas trainers, giving them an Adidas trainer page, 100%, that'll mean that, that's fine. If people are searching specifically for the Adidas Samba, they need to have that clean path. Adidas do a good thing, a good way of doing this, they actually do have a specific Samba landing page. However, most e-commerce sites will likely bundle 
that's down the line in just with the Adidas category. And you might be able to then do a sub-filter. Whereas for me, if somebody's searching for that specific product, that specific element and that specific line, if you give them an actual landing page and you give Google a good quality landing page to rank for that query where Mac is equal to you kind of giving Google a signal that that page should be not indexed, it should be served, and it should be prominent for that, and giving you a good experience. And it's kind of that next level of not necessarily seeing that in third party tools, but understanding what the customer base is coming back with, and then just modifying architecture and that journey for that. Same way that you would in an offline store. If you know, um, well, we know supermarkets do that offline. Um, you'll have lost leaders that bring people into the store, which the supermarket itself might break even on or make a very small loss on. But if the person's coming for that, they'll pick up a basket. They always typically also tend to do lost leaders on heavy items because heavy items equals trolley. If you've got someone pushing a trolley around, they're likely to pick up other stuff as well. So it's that kind of just taking that psychological element and transposing it online. That's really, I think what's awesome to hear from that is I think you normally associate like customer information or having that customer focus towards more like on-page content delivery. Whereas what we're trying to tie here is like technical optimization to also the way that people shop or even view the product. Like, as you mentioned there, we've added us, you use use specific um, product interests and then understanding how you can cater that website to, you know target those users and capture those users whereas like you said it's not like a a bit you need this bespoke solution for example if it was a fast fashion website you'd want something completely different towards that because it's more more towards like those general terms or trending terms that happen in that space whereas you're having that precise like product information understanding the way that you know adidas or customer may shop and then being able to build like a the technical capability of like the product listing pages or the category pages around it yeah exactly and some fast fashion sites have started to do this so a very dipping your time water approach to it is versus listing uh t-shirts shirts trousers shoes you create a category of lifestyle so active um, casual office wear office wear night out etc and then bundle the products in with tagging from the PIM system there, and then allow the filtering from there, or if not, display as collection outfits. Because how people used to shop is they went into the physical stores, they saw the mannequins, they saw the outfit. They might not necessarily agree with everything in the outfit, but the outfits were put together with the idea of people purchasing not maybe all of it, but at least a con- combination of it, but also allowing the user to see, oh, I own similar jeans to that. That top and shoes go nice with jeans like that, so I will purchase the top and shoes. So then it's gone from someone just looking for the top to all the shoes to actually purchasing a second item. So it's kind of trying to, again, transpose that experience online. And that doesn't necessarily come from the on-page content. That's just some tagging that we can what you do on the products and then pull it through onto the PDP or PLP pages. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And and just going on to one of my favorite questions for asking any SEO now in terms of kind of go-to tools or arsenal, you know, an arsenal that you use. Um, what are your tools, I guess, for optimizing and maintaining um, e-commerce stores, like especially enterprise websites? So this can any be be anything from like crawling solutions or even like um, using alerts to kind of inform of any issues but then I know you know testing is a, a kind of a, a hot area for SEO at the moment yeah love to hear any kind of things that you use on a day-to-day basis. So I mean I've got got access to the usual kind of culprits that you throw out there so frog bulb, um, hay drives, mangles, you know all the usual suspects that you'd find on a chrome bookmark bar. Um, then from there, kind of a lot of the stuff we do, especially with large e-com, is we take Search Console and GA and sometimes Adobe APIs and put them through like Google Cloud functions and then just put them into some form of GUI, uh, a, a graphic interface of some sort. Um, or if the data is not that difficult to handle in some like data studio or something like that, then hook it up with a Slack alert or a Teams alert or something like that. So we can 
routinely scheduled crawls through like Frog, Pull the Ease the API, find the indexability, that will automatically match yourself up in cloud functions to a list of, say, products that we know are good revenue drivers or drove revenue well over the past few weeks. And you can highlight to say, well, actually, these products are dropping by 30 40% in revenue. These are an issue, then we can at least look at it to see, well, there's no indexing issue, there's no linking issue. It might just be seasonal or it might just be buyer preference, but it gives us that level of insight. We can then feedback to the client the client team with and actually say, well, these brands are dropping revenue. How about we just change up what we're showing as the top sticky links or the top main links here and improve linking to these others whilst, whilst these basically aren't the hot topic anymore? Um, and then just turn it back on there. Other sites, which one of the sites, one well, I mentioned, which is over 300,000 SKUs, that's heavily just data-driven in cloud functions and pulling it through because of the uh, cardinality you get looking in GSC and GA directly and then the throttling on the APIs as well. And even just hitting the API query limits, that's a nightmare. So being able just to pull that into another database is useful. Um, and then kind of blending the data you get from HRFs, Mangles, et cetera, in with that just helps paint a better picture. But the best picture we tend to usually see is, especially like on a Salesforce client, if they're using Tableau and helps all their business intelligence data up to that, and we can actually map product trends over however long we've been receiving the data for on Salesforce, map it to what we see in terms of sessions to that product from GA, and then correlate it with revenue from that respect and that usually then gives us the list of these 500 products being indexed at this time of year really matter to us so we just turn up the notifications around that and spam search console or historically if we saw any issues nice that's that's amazing i guess a lot of that sounds like um i guess something that you may lead on as well is like kind of designing this bespoke solution that may suit towards specific clients and then using APIs and then developing a solution that can suit their kind of e-commerce business model you mentioned there around like trends or whenever seasonality kicks in. Um, have you found that is like an ongoing thing for yourself now in terms of when some when you, when you feel like a tool can't do it to a certain desired impact, you go away and like use that data set from an API or anything like that and create that solution that can be, I guess, beneficial for a bunch of clients. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's just me that does it either. We've, um, re- well, over the past few years, we've really kind of built in that culture of if, if a tool doesn't do it um, the way we want it to look, then we've got no qualms in actually then making it ourselves, either internally or externally. Um, and then just kind of finding a way from there. So, uh, an example of one of the US clients I've got in, they've got two halves to their business. So, I've got the, online and offline version. So when COVID hit in 2020, the online version was already in kind of, it's a declining market. Obviously online, no one could go out, stay at home orders in the States, online boomed. The offline suffered because all shut. The offline, interestingly, however, is an increasingly growing market, which contradicts probably all the other markets in where offline is taking over. And that's why online is taking over offline. And post-pandemic, that's reached new highs. So the fact they have people coming to the site who have a local intent, looking for the local, essentially, bricks and mortar element of a business versus looking for the online, we've, through ITM tagging on internals, ETM tagging on external, and just being clever of how we break it through the database, rather than having where we used to have, say, C-level or the, or the or sort of that VP-level looking at it going, oh, why is conversion rate really down on organic, etc.? We can now break it up into, well, these people are looking for local, these people are looking for brick-and-mortar experience, these people are navigating to product pages and then doing uh, click-and-collect kind of elements. And then these other, then the second group, these are the people who are directly shopping online. So all... all almost at a point where we can kind of report on the two separate user bases more effectively. And that actually shows the massive difference in convert, like conversion rates and other elements, which ultimately then impacts, do we need user testing tools? Do we need to invest dollars in doing X, Y, Z? Um, 
But now we've actually got data which shows it properly, we can make a better decision that way as well. Nice, that's amazing. And, and going back to, you mentioned previously, well, just in a, a few moments ago, in terms of the indexing API as well, in terms of spamming that. I guess um, most recently, uh, I know with the, the updates towards this specific area, and you've mentioned Screaming Frog, and I know and, and Sightbulb as well, I've, I've been able to use the indexing API um, to the advantage of you know crawling websites with that. Um, what difference has it made, I guess, yourself and and, and at Salt in terms of the, the ability to optimize large websites and then also using that indexing API alongside it as well? So, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be playing around with a beta for the indexing API for Google for some time. And from a difference perspective, being honest, it's just kind of made it easy to automate that process versus that submission of key URLs in the background whilst you're doing other stuff. Um, in terms of the actual indexing side of things, though, especially with not just the indexing API, but also indexed now, I'm yet to really see a discernible impact of it on large websites, on small websites, or brand new domains, 100% index now than um, the indexing API. I've seen quicker elements on, but at that kind of probably I'm going to say 15, 20,000 scale plus, it might be having the impact, but I think just because of how Search Console reports in the way it does, it's very hard to actually know whether or not it is having that impact because of delays. And obviously we don't know what part of the conveyor belt URL is on. It could be versus how whether or not Search Console was fully updated yet with correct information, et cetera. So the only one I have potentially seen impact on um, is indexed now in a search engine that isn't Google um, another search engine that does fully support it and that was quite impactful and quick but again being honest I can't see Google adopting index now fully I know it's testing at the moment but I just I can just see the amount of requests it would receive from people just hammering in it not respecting the limit and it would just overload the crawlers and I think it's like a it's like anything in SEO, if we get something good like bat links or, con or keywords or anything like that, we abuse it to a point where it becomes redundant and I kind of yeah. just happening. Yeah, I think especially in the, I guess, past year or so, people have noticed a lot of indexing issues. I know people, websites that have you know dropped out of index for specific pages. Um, I know there's been an issue there. I've even seen kind of people mention on Twitter now, it feels a, a lot longer to get indexed across specific pages as well. So um, especially, I think even outside of the, the, I guess the technical SEO remit, we are still, we are seeing more of a trending area where people are noticing like indexing issues. So I think this is going to be something that just continues into the future. Yeah, I think with that I think the interesting thing that we probably need to take a look outside of SEO is that there's for me there's three factors that play into it. There's the physical factor of to store that much data either physically or on a cloud or a combination, whether or not using bare metal or cloud servers, is phenomenal. And the internet is an expanding universe, not a contracting one. So that comes to the second point, there's a saturation point of what becomes feasible from a financial perspective and a resource perspective for Google to store, process, and retain. And that's remembering that Google has no obligation to index and store everything. And then that brings on to the third point of a saturation point of, is there really anything on the internet being published today but doesn't in one form or the other already exist so whilst new companies might be expanding into new areas and trying to establish into new niches and adding value in different ways google has to do that value proposition exchange and interestingly in the quality rate guidelines which we know don't impact search but it started using a phrase called beneficial purpose and using beneficial purpose in line with page quality. So if there's already 100,000 pages talking about uh, agile estimation using Fibonacci sequencing, if you're adding another page to that mix and you're not a recognized market leader 
you're not a popular blog, you've not got any kind of authority in that space, you're just the thousand, you're the hundred thousand first article just repeating information that already exists. From a cost standpoint, Google won't likely give that an index and likely won't give it credence. If it's better than the top 100 out there, it will get a place there. But oftentimes, I'd argue, a lot of content either isn't needed and isn't there because we also then have to take into account satisfaction of users. So if it is a topic and Google is ranking stuff and genuinely we have produced a piece of content which is worthy of being a top 10 position because of the value proposition, the depth, the authority, etc. If Google's getting positive user metrics for that cert and it isn't seeing any user dissatisfaction, it has no urgency or no need to rush in and disrupt that by trialing a piece of content because it has no obligation to. And I think that saturation point is starting to transpire a lot more now. And that goes back to kind of what I saw in January with three of our clients where over space of three, four days, they all seem to have their indexing changed. And John Mueller has said over the past sort of three, four months, he expects 20% of website not being indexed. That's normal. I wouldn't panic. Sometimes I've seen it be more than that and it not be an issue. Um, he also said, I think a couple of months ago, that um, we saw a lot of websites drop for queries, which you probably call peripheral kind of edge queries, like they're relevant, but they're not 100% relevant. You can see why you were ranking, but not. John Mueller described that as bug fixing, where Google was simply realising that, oh, we were ranking you for something which potentially you shouldn't have been, so we've rectified that bug. So it kind of comes back to that saturation point of if you're not adding value, you're not really going to get benefited from what is essentially a private organization storing and serving data. Yeah, I think that's a really great point that you mentioned there in terms of like the saturation, but also like if you're not bringing value towards their search and if it's already gaining, you know, positive click-through rates and there's no issues with people scrolling down that page in order to identify the search result by you, what what's the point in in them indexing you? I think one of the greatest ways I feel to ever explain to a senior stakeholder that I'm you know on an enterprise e-commerce website is it effectively costs Google to, you know to crawl and into it to your website. So why would they spend all that money to crawl a million pages of yours that are slow and inaccessible and low quality and stuff like that? So yes, yeah, a really great point. I think um, a lot of your questions there you've always focused around like. Um, around like prioritizing it was great to hear in terms of like technical items and associating them with with revenue and you know seasonality and certain data points there I guess when you're looking to um, work with like a, a development team um, a product team or anything like that in terms of um, kind of an e-commerce website or an enterprise e-commerce website how do you kind of prioritize your your technical like recommendations as such I know um Auditing has become a bit of a dirty word because it just feels like maybe sometimes of a checklist in there. But are there any like key focuses that you look to prioritize? I know earlier your solace created a, like a bit of a metric in, or matrix of how she prioritizes like technical items and how they focus on things that can have a significant impact. But how do you go about identifying, um, I guess, issues across the website and then also presenting that towards maybe a development team or a senior stakeholder in terms of you know, this needs to be done because this um, it will have this impact on the business. No, absolutely. So I think when it comes to that initial presentation, for me, it's a three-stage process. It's identification, collaboration, then presentation. So this is something I try and we, well, we instill across all our consultants and anyone doing work. So it's the case of you go out and identify an issue, you've done the tests you've limits tested it you've verified it something's broken great we list it out and we do it in a ticket format like you would if you're using jira trello asana insert project management system here so it can be transposed over but then for me the key thing is actually understanding the language that the development team and the business is already used to so we work with numerous development teams some of them will use t-shirt sizing um, as a way of estimating uh, development resource need and time. Some of them will use dot voting matrices. Others will use Fibonacci scales. Some of them will use Fibonacci scales up to a certain number um, because that's how a business works. But when we understand 
the language the business is used to, especially around development, because even though they might not understand SEO fully, everyone seems to understand development and development cost and development impact very well, regardless if they're in that field or not in some businesses. So what we would do is we would turn on, this it goes into the collaboration stage, we would say, um, we've got issue X. Here's what issue X is from an SEO perspective, based on all the other data we can see and our experience, it will be a L on the t-shirt scale in terms of performance. We'd then turn around to the development team, explain the issue to them, explain how what we've probably seen target fixed in the past, how we would basically, we'd identify the acceptance criteria, go through it with them, and they would turn around and go, well, from a development perspective, it's an M. So we end up with a list of essentially sortable SEO items by impact, but then also by dev resource. So when we actually go to present this to C-level and present this to other stakeholders, we're talking a language they already understand because they'll have spoken it to the development team numerous times and we're portraying impact in that way. But it also then, what C-level and other stakeholders love, is it gives a, here's the high high impact SEO items correlated with what are actually low development impact. So that's your, and I hate this term with, just pure grievance, like the low-hanging fruit. Um, yeah. And the problem's there, but that then they go, oh, so there's low-hanging fruit, there's front-loaded value, there's front-loaded ROI, and then there's the more back-burner ones, which are high-dev effort, but don't make any difference kind of stuff. But because we can show that, it's like, a, oh, it's not just a blind checklist, it's not just blind best practice, it's actually thought through. And because we've done the planning with developers, they're a lot more accommodating to fit it into their deployments, their sprints. And it just makes it work a lot more seamlessly from there. Yeah, no, that's awesome to hear. And, and, you know, really, I can see really see the value, like you said there, of getting the senior stakeholders on board and, like you said, speaking their language. Um, so to really kind of end this podcast now in terms of, um, I know you've previously discussed CDN technology and NGSEO, and you've wrote a, a few blogs about that. Uh, what are, do you feel are the emerging areas that you think, I guess, technical SEOs or maybe people with an interest in technical SEO should be should be learning about? And maybe I might make this a little bit challenging and you can only pick one for someone to, to be learning about right now. No, that's first. I know the obvious answer to go to here would be things like Python and automation and all that jazz. But for me, the biggest thing I think a majority of SEOs could upskill on, especially going into what's happening with privacy laws and other legal requirements over the next two, three years, is around analytics and attribution. And I'm not just talking about sort of GA4 there, but if we, as we're moving towards cookie-less and moving towards more user privacy, more relevance imposed, being able to actually... I think it's the kind of analogy of if you're a lumberjack and you're in a forest and you fell a big tree, if no one's around to hear it or see it, does it really matter? And if we move to areas of some businesses, like especially that we work with, where we don't even have analytics installed because of privacy concerns and other elements, it's how do we show both an ROI on the external vendor spend, but how do we actually show progress? How do we show just general progress, I don't want to say progress again, but how do we just show movement or impact of what's actually happening? And yes, not just getting, we're getting a base level with analytics is good, but actually then understanding server-side tagging, understanding how we can move forward in the calculus world, but then working on not just how we can get the data, but how, because the data will change. That's going to be one of the things we have to come to terms with. We won't have as clear attribution to potentially organics, we'll have to start looking at understanding analytics models and attribution models as well, but ultimately how we can then tell that story to a client because I see a lot of reports from agencies that are sent across and their PowerPoints with graphs in and then snippets of text telling the story. It's going to be a lot harder to do that when the graph has changed and the data point has changed and there might be elements of a business that we don't see. So the backend system with the financial data, et cetera. So yeah, analytics and attribution modeling. I'm going to count that as one, not, not two yeah. URLs. No, I like that. I like that a lot. It's, I think it's a bit new and um, like you said, if 
I would have, I would have expected maybe an answer like automation and Python or anything like that, but no, that's that was super interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really like really like hearing that answer as well. Um, and I'm just you know wheeling myself back out for the final part of the for the final part of the podcast now. But I was listening to that whole conversation and and just want to say there was so much so much fascinating stuff in there. So oh, thank you very much to you, Dan, for for coming on and talking to us about that. Um, but if people want to hear more about what you're doing, uh, I know you're you're pretty active with um, various kind of speaking and, and writing. So where can people uh, keep up with what's going on with you? Um, best place, honestly, on Twitter. Uh, Taylor Dan RW is my handle, and then I usually just publish everything on there. But if not, I've also got my own personal site, which is DanTaylor.online. Fantastic. Well, we will put the uh, we'll put the link to Twitter and to your personal site in the blog post that goes up with this episode and in the description so that people can access it nice and easily. Um, Thank you for me. But yeah, well, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you've, I think, raised uh, a lot of really interesting topics there that uh, I'm sure will have kind of uh, piqued people's interest and, and maybe um, spawned a desire for sort of more research and looking into it further, which, uh, which is exactly what we're trying to do. So we really appreciate that. And um, that'll do it for, for this week's podcast episode. Uh, so we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with more on-page SEO content where we'll continue to bring you a variety of voices from within the SEO industry throughout this year. Uh, but in the meantime, we would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on the podcast app of your choice, which just helps other people find us uh, and hear these conversations. Um, and if you want to send in any future questions uh, for our guests or just chat to us about SEO, you can find uh, me on Twitter at Ben J. Gary with two R's and Ed is on Twitter at EdJTW with two D's. And if you can't wait for your next helping of digital marketing content, then check out impression.co.uk slash blog, which is where you can find all of the latest articles uh, and info on what we're doing beyond just SEO, uh, everything that we're involved in there. Uh, and as always, we highly recommend checking out womenintechseo.com slash speakers, which is a fantastic way to find more people uh, speaking about technical SEO and, and on-page SEO uh, or writing and, and involved in these conversations too. So Dan and Ed, thank you both for your time. Uh, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks for your next installment of On-Page Conversation. Goodbye, everyone.